So I am excited about today, sort of, because on the one hand, it's a topic that I really want to talk about. On the other hand, um, whenever I talk about money in the context of a church, it makes me nervous. And you will find out today why talking about money makes me as a pastor nervous, even though it's a different reason for why talking about money in the context of a church might make the congregation people nervous. Like if you show up at a church for the first time ever, as some of you today are, and you find out that church is talking about money, there's a part of you that's like, oh my goodness, what's going to happen? This is totally the wrong Sunday for me to show up. Well, let me tell you, we've been in this series talking about money because there is a Bible passage that is way misunderstood. We get it transformed into the wrong way in our hearts and our minds. I know you've all heard it because it's spoken of regularly on television stations and just in casual conversation. It's the phrase, money is the root of all evil. You've heard that phrase before, right? You've heard the phrase, money is the root of all evil. Well, it's wrong. Because what the Bible actually says in 1 Timothy is the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's not that money is the root of all evil. It's that we're not talking about all, we're not talking about all evil. We're talking about a root of all kinds of evil. And it's not money itself. It's the love of money. And so we get it wrong because we simplify it too much. But if you pay close attention, you realize that the problems in our world are largely money problems. The evil problems aren't all money problems, but every kind of evil problem has a money problem. And our money problems have a heart problem. It's the love, it's the thing in our hearts that causes us to have a money problem, that causes us then to have an evil problem that causes the world to get messed up. And so, what we're doing is we're going all the way back to the root. Money isn't the root of all evil. Your heart and my heart is the root of our money problems, and our money problems are the root of all kinds of evil, and that's the root of a lot of other things. So we're going all the way back to the root cause of all the other things. And so, two weeks ago, I talked about greed. And just this idea of needing more and what it does to us spiritually and what it does to us relationally. Last week, I talked about the fact that the solution to our money problems is a life of trust and gratitude. A life of gratitude to God for all of his blessings and a life of trust in God that he will continue to provide blessings. It's a life of trust and gratitude. And at the intersection of trust and gratitude is a Bible practice called tithing, where you take the first 10% of your income, you give it directly back to God without making any decisions over it. You just give it right back to him because in the process of returning that back to God, you are trusting God to take care of you the rest of the month, the rest of the week, the rest of the pay period, and you are showing gratitude to God by saying, God, I'm just going to give to you a, a literal percentage of whatever you give to me. I'm just going to give it right on back to you. And so last week we talked about tithing. This week we're going to talk about something that on the one hand is a little bit more practical, on the other hand is a little bit more personal, and the bottom line is it covers the weakness in the tithing principle. You see, Tithing has one major flaw. It's only 10%. And Jesus wants so much more. In fact, he tells us that we need to accurately count the cost 
of following him. One of my favorite passages on that idea comes in the book of Luke in this passage we're going to look at right now. So if you have your Bibles, flip to Luke chapter 14, or you can read it off the screen, or you can read it in our app. But it says this, Jesus says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you, buy the fo- if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees you will ridicule you, saying this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. There's a part of that story that I just love because it's Jesus talking about someone making fun of you. And there's this picture I have in my mind of Nelson in The, in the Simpsons just pointing at the person going, ha ha. And it's this idea of the person who's, who decides they're going to do some project and they estimated the project wrong and they started the project without enough resources to finish it and then the other people around them ridicule them. And there's something about this story that I just kind of find funny. Maybe it was because I learned it as a kid and as a kid I pictured in my mind different people making fun of the guy standing next to a half-built tower. But whatever it is, it's just kind of one of those stories that I find to be funny. But you have to remember that this happens in a bigger context. Jesus isn't just talking about some, you know, pragmatic financial concern. He's not simply saying every time you make a financial decision, sit down and run through all the numbers to make sure it's a wise financial decision. That's a good application of that kind of concept, but it's not the point of what Jesus is sharing. In fact, let me read it to you in its bigger context starting again in chapter 14, but now going back to verse 25. It says, Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Jesus is making a claim that you've got a bunch of people following him and the greatest way to get that bunch, that crowd of people to stop following him is to tell them they need to die in order to keep following him. That's going to make some of those people turn away. I'm imagining Jesus is doing that intentionally. He's trying to raise the level of what it means to make a commitment to Jesus because he wants the stragglers to get gone. But he says, listen, if you want to follow me, you have to hate your mother, brother, sister, father. You have, to, you have to hate all these other people. Now it's like, wait a minute. Okay, does Jesus really want me to hate my family members in order to follow him? Now, I'll come back to that concept of hate in just a little bit. But at, at this point right now, I want to clarify that Jesus is not asking for you to kill the other people. Pay close attention. He's not asking for you to kill the other people. That's the kind of hate you and I are familiar with. He's asking for you to figuratively, spiritually kill yourself. And all of us are like, wait a minute, spiritually, figuratively? The metaphor is that if I'm willing to die, every one of us knows that one of the key reasons we love life is the people around us. We love our lives if we have good relationships with the people around us. And so Jesus is saying you have to be so willing to lose everything to follow me. Jesus is raising the stakes so much that he says following him is death effectively to everything else. But keep reading. 
Because now we get to the fun part that we just saw earlier. He says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. This is a person who began to do something, and Jesus just told them that there's a thing he wants them to do, follow him, and there's a high cost to following him. And so therefore, there are some people who might start the journey but not be able to finish it because they didn't adequately estimate the cost. Now you're getting the context, right? So let's keep going. See the next little story he tells. He says, or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. See, what he's saying is maybe, maybe you're a king and you're going to go off to battle. But you know, the other people have twice as many in their army as you do. And so you really have to do the evaluation. Are your men, on average, twice as good as all of those other men? Is your equipment twice as powerful as all their equipment? Is all of your stuff twice as good as all of their stuff? You have to weigh the odds. You have to compute all the different things. And remember, this is in the context of someone saying, it's going to cost you everything. In fact, that's how he ends it. Take a look at the last little phrase. He says, In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. See, the biggest problem with tithing is that it's only 10%. But Jesus wants us to give up everything. He wants us to give up everything we have. This is why talking about money in the context of a church is so threatening. Because it would be easy for me to say, hey, just give 5% of your income to the church and you're good. Or just give 10% of your income to the church and you're good. Or just give something to this particular project or that particular project and you're good. But if I say you have to let go of everything, 100% of everything, then some people might not be interested in following anymore. But that was Jesus' point. Jesus' point is to say, if you can't buy this, then you can't join this. He demands everything. Now, let me show you something that I noticed for the first time this week. It says this in the passage we just looked at. If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off. Talk about that king. The king sits down, he weighs everything. He says, can I defeat the other king? And if he's not able, he will send a delegation and that delegation is going to offer whatever it takes to get peace, right? When the king realizes he can't win, he will send a delegation to offer whatever he has to offer in order to get peace. And Jesus says, if you want peace with me, the amount is everything. Here's the bottom line. You and I can't win against Jesus. He's a king, 
And we like to think of ourselves as kings and queens of our own little kingdoms, especially financially. We're kings and queens of our own little financial kingdoms, and we want to build our little kingdom. We want to build our little tower. We want to do the things with our stuff that we, we think is really, you know, is important to us. And yet there's this other king out there, and that other king, you know, I have to really weigh whether or not I can defeat that other king with my resources, my 10,000 versus his 20,000. I have to, well, Jesus has a lot more than 20,000. And the point that he's trying to make is that he is so much the king that the way to have peace with him is to send him everything, to give up everything. Now, how in the world do we do that? Well, I'm going to come back to some practical things in just a little bit, but before we do that, I want to just dig in a little bit deeper on this idea that Jesus demands literally everything. And that he isn't just speaking metaphorically. That he literally does want everything. And so let's just skip a couple chapters. Let's go to Luke chapter 16. Because in Luke 16, we read the second most famous verse in the Bible when it comes to money. The first most famous verse is the one that is misquoted as money is the root of all evil. We already looked at that one. This is the second most famous verse in the Bible about money. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. It's a passage that churches have talked about a lot throughout the years. It's a passage I've heard talked about a lot. You can't serve both God and money. You'll hate one, you'll love the other. It's a a passage that gets talked about. It's just not a passage that gets really talked about. It's a passage that gets talked around, tossed around, but not really dealt with. I want to ask you a question about this verse in a way that I don't think I've ever asked it before and in a way I've never heard anyone else ask it of me before. But to get real personal, the question goes like this. Which one do you hate, God or money? See, for most of my life, I haven't viewed them as being contradictory things. I've read the passage, right? Jesus says, you can't serve both God and money. And then I give myself the justification. I say, oh, well, I'm not serving money. I'm serving God. I just want money. You know, I'm serving God. Oh, and I want more money so I can serve God better with my money. And so I'm pursuing money, but I'm pretending that I'm doing it for God. There's this, this attitude in my heart that has never seen them as really being incompatible because I have been able to justify it for myself. I serve God. Money's just a tool. Money's just something that I can use to do what I'm really supposed to do, serve God, right? That's something that perhaps you've thought of yourself. The problem is Jesus doesn't give us a lukewarm spot in the middle. When Jesus says what he says, he says, you will either love one and hate the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. That's what he says. There is no middle ground. Here's the bottom line. Jesus says you either love God and hate money or you hate God and love money. And so I'll add one little thing to it. If you are lukewarm about money, then you must also be lukewarm about God. 
Now, how in the world can we say such a thing? I'm not saying it. I'm just reading what Jesus says. Let me illustrate this for you a little bit. I told you last week about some stories um, that I've had personally where I've talked about tithing in the context of church. And then after those services, someone has come up to me and they've been really upset with me. I told you last week there was this guy in one of the churches that I was teaching at and, he, uh, and I, I spoke on tithing. And then afterwards he came into my office and he just ripped into me. He just yelled at me for about an hour about how I was being unbiblical and how I was violating their church constitution and all these sort of things. He was just mad, mad, mad at me about all these things. And then I told you that after he and his family left the church, the treasurer let me know that that guy had never really given any money to the church at all. And so he was just upset that I was talking about tithing. And so here's the thing that I realized as an example from that particular guy. He was a guy who, when I read God's word about these principles like tithing, me just reading God's word was enough to make him angry. I wasn't making up stuff. I wasn't saying, okay, now God might have said 10%, but I'm telling you 20%. I was just reading the words that came out of the Bible, but he got mad at me. So then the question is, is he angry at me or is he angry at the words that that were being read from the Bible? And the bottom line is, frequently what happens in our hearts is something will come into our lives that threatens our economic situation. And if it threatens our economic situation, we instantly react against it and say, well, it can't be God. That's got to be something fake. Because we assume that God and my good economy are supposed to be working together. Jesus said, you cannot serve both God and money. There's an interesting thing that I've experienced in my life. Uh, I've been raised in a Christian home. I've been raised in a Christian school. I went to a Christian college. I went to a Christian graduate school. I've, I've lived my entire life in a sector of the Christian world known as evangelical. And one of the things in my experience is that every single time something of the political world makes its way into the church, one of the questions that is always asked, not the only question, and it's not the biggest question, but it's one of the questions that is always asked from Christians in the circles in which I was raised, the question is, how will that affect the economy? But how will that affect the economy? And someone will say, well, you know, the government is proposing this sort of thing. And then someone says, yeah, well, I voted for that guy because that guy would have had a better effect on the economy. And for some reason, even Christians use the word the economy to refer to the motivation behind why we make the decisions, why we vote the way we do, why we support the things that we do. It's a very interesting thought that I have I've noticed this and I've been a part of it my entire life. Now, I don't want to throw anyone under the bus here, but I'll be honest with you about me. In the past, whenever I used that phrase, and I would say, well, I voted for this person because I thought this person would be better for the economy, or I I voted against this particular policy because I didn't think that policy was good for the economy. In the past, when I've used that phrase, what I've really meant is that I don't think that policy is going to help me spend less at the gas pump. I don't think that politician is going to help me spend less at my medical bills. 
I don't think that politician is going to help my income go up. I don't think that politician is going to make taxes go down. Effectively, what I have generally said whenever I have said what's good for the economy is I have said something along the lines of, it's code word for I want to be rich. Now, I'm not throwing anyone else under the bus. I'm just saying this is me. This is how I have used the word in the past. What's good for the economy is code for will it make me rich? But Jesus said you cannot serve both God and money. Jesus said you will hate one and love the other. The question is do I love God and hate money? Or do I love money and hate God. I want to show you the context of this verse because it's important. Let's just keep reading the next couple of verses after what Jesus said. He said, you cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money, ah, oh, that's my loophole. I finally found a way to get off the hook here because for a while there, I was starting to get worried. For a while there, I was starting to feel like I needed to hate money. No, it's not me. Jesus is actually talking about the Pharisees, right? I can get myself off of this whole you know, stress ball because I can blame, oh no, Jesus is talking about the Pharisees. He's not talking about me. He's not talking about people like me. He's talking about them. But look what he said. He said, the Phar- it says, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were Sneering at Jesus, he said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others. Okay, so he says to the Pharisees, you're trying to justify this love of money that you have. Man, if I knew someone who was trying to justify their love of money, now I would want to bring them the words of Jesus about this, but Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, your problem is you're trying to justify your love of money. And then let's read how Jesus ends this little statement. He says, but, let's put it up there, But God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Um, So Jesus, when he's talking about money, specifically says you've got a heart problem. God knows your heart. And the thing that you like, the thing that is in your heart in a positive way, God actually detests. The reason Jesus says you have to hate money if you love God is that Jesus knows God hates money. Well, that's not exactly accurate. Let's just keep it accurate to what Jesus actually said. The things we value disgust God. The things we value disgust God. Should we say that God hates money? No, I think it's actually something a little bit deeper than that. I think it's something different. I think it's something deeper. I think what disgusts God is not the little piece of green paper with a person's face on it. I don't think the thing that disgusts God is the little thing that I carry around in my pocket and then swipe. I don't think he he is upset about the money itself. I think he is upset with our value system. It's our value system that disgusts God. The value system that there is a way of quantizing everything into a transaction. The way of turning everything into an economic question. The way of turning everything into a I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine kind of situation. I'll tell you a little story. This isn't a true story. In fact, I desperately hope it is not a true story. The names are definitely made up because I made them up. 
We're just going to call them John and Jane. Two parents, they have a kid. We'll call him John Jr., just because it's easy. So here's John and here's Jane, and they have a child, Jr., and they are great parents. They have provided everything that this kid needs. They've given him a good home in a good neighborhood. They've brought him to a good school. They give him all the best medical attention. They give him all the best uh, healthy foods. They have cared for him throughout his life, and he is now 18 years old. And John and Jane bring Junior into the room and they say, Junior, it is now your 18th birthday. You are now a man. And as we deploy you into the world of manhood, there are a few accounts we need to settle. You see, your mom and I have been keeping a spreadsheet for a while now, and uh, we've totaled up the hospital bills for when you were born and uh, all the diapers and the baby food and all of the vaccinations and other medical things that we had, all of those medical checks that we took you to, all the pediatrician appointments. Uh, we've totaled up all of the clothing that we've bought for you throughout your life, all the food we've given you throughout your life. We've, we've calculated the percentage of our electricity that you have used. In fact, we've calculated the percentage of our mortgage that you have absorbed by having that room in the house and by doing what you've done with our bathroom. And, and we just have calculated all these things. In fact, we've also calculated our time. Your mom and I have been keeping a punch card system since the day you were born, measuring the amount of time that we were with you. And we've been conservative. I mean, a professional uh, child care, a professional nanny might be getting $30, $50 an hour. We've been conservative at only calculating it at about $25 an hour because we've given you the best possible love that we can. We figured out the gas that it took us to drive you back and forth to your soccer games and the, and the fees for all of the different sporting events and band equipment and stuff that you've gotten. So we calculated all this stuff. Christmas gifts, we're letting you keep those things. Birthday gifts too. But the rest of the stuff, we've calculated it. Here's the spreadsheet. And we want you to know that we, we aren't mean parents. We are able to set you up on a payment plan. Now, that might be a really funny Disney Plus movie. It might be a really scary Netflix movie. But we all know that's a, just a terrible situation. But this is why God hates money. Because money has the power to undermine everything good. Money has the power to undermine love. Money has the power to undermine gratitude and grace and all this generosity of time and that the parents have given it. The, the, I mean, just think about Junior at that moment in time. All of a sudden, everything he's ever known in his life is a sham. None of it has been true. None of it has been real. His parents have just been viewing this as an investment opportunity that one of these days they're going to make it all back. When you bring money into the equation, everything becomes a transaction and everything becomes valued. Human beings get valued. Human life gets valued. Uh, friendship gets valued. All the things that should be invaluable become valued as soon as the value system of money gets involved. God hates it. He can't stand the conversation that we might call, how's the economy doing? Now granted, we live in a society 
And when the overall society is going upward, we can fool ourselves, and sometimes it's the truth that everybody in that society also moves upward. And if the economy gets stronger, then we can tell ourselves that everybody in that economy might be getting stronger. But when the conversation is about the economy, when the conversation is about the money, when the conversation is about any of those things, it diminishes all of the personal stuff. And your heavenly Father would say you either love money and hate me, or you love me, and hate this means of valuing everything so that we can transact everything, so that we can exchange everything. So what do we do? How do we deal with a God who says, I want everything from you, and I want you to literally hate the means of transactions in your society. How, how do we deal with that? How do we follow that? How do we do anything about that? Well, luckily, context will help. Luke chapter 16, I started my passage reading a little bit too late. Jesus gave us the answer first before he described the problem. So let's go backwards, and I'll show you the answer first. It's in verse 10. Jesus says, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever's dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if, you have been tr- if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? Worldly wealth is someone else's property. Do you see that? Worldly wealth is someone else's property. Our worldly wealth is not ours. It's a test. It's an evaluation. God is giving us access and ability to manage some things, and then he says to us, use it well. Use it well. And if you manage this stuff well, then God can give you true riches. See, I didn't say that God wanted you to give everything away. I said God wanted you to give everything up. That's saying, God, no, this is is your stuff. God is trusting us with his stuff. I can totally hate money, but recognize that God has brought a bunch of assets slash wealth into my hands, and it's my job to use his stuff well. So, I don't have the opportunity today to give you like a list of do's and don'ts. Uh, A bunch of things that say, this is the right way to invest your money. This is the right way to spend your money. This is the right way to give your money. I, I don't have that list for you. I can't. I can't determine that list for you. What I can do is I can give you three principles that if you follow these three principles, I believe you will be on the side of the people who love God and who recognize that you can hate money because you don't need it. But God's going to give you access to some of His so that you can manage His. Here are the three principles. Number one, simply saying none of this is mine. None of this is mine. I'm not giving it all away. I'm just giving it up. None of this is mine. All of this is God's. Everything I have. So we're going to start by giving God straight back 10%. And then everything else is still not mine. Everything else is still God's. It's my job to use it well. Number one, none of this is mine. Number two, 
I want to value what God values. If I see anything in Scripture that tells me that God values the means of exchange, then I can value the means of exchange. But if God values the end results of the kinds of exchanges, then I need to value the end results. I need to value the people. I need to value the process. I need to value those things, not just the means of exchange itself or anything else. I want to value what God values. And then number three, I need to manage God's stuff. For him, not for me. I'm so tempted to manage God's stuff in a way that benefits me. It's God's stuff, but it's in my hands. And I really want to use it in a way that benefits me. But that's not what God wants me to do. God wants me to manage his stuff for him. If I'm doing those things, then I believe I'm walking on this right path. And I believe that the root problem of love of money will not be a problem for me. I mean, every day I'll need to reevaluate it. Every day I'll need to revisit it. Every single time new money comes into my hands, I'll need to say to myself consciously, this is still not mine. This is still not for me. This is just being used by me for God. But... If I can maintain these principles, then at least I'm walking the path that Jesus has set up for me. And the same thing goes for you. I hope and I pray that you are one of those people who is not lukewarm about the issue of God and money. I hope and I pray that you're a person who says, no, having a relationship with God is so much better than any of the other things of this world that I'm going to shoot directly for that. And if he ever brings assets and wealth into my life, I'm going to manage them for him. It's tough, I know. It's difficult. And it's also difficult because there's no concrete way to evaluate whether or not this last purchase was honorable. But God is going to be with you in it. So let me ask you to be praying and seeking, reading, understanding, and saying, God, what is it that you would do in my heart? And in the meantime, We'll say, God, you can have my whole heart. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.